turn your Bibles or turn them on once again to the book of Revelation chapter 2. We're, we're looking at verses 8 through 11 today and talking about the church at Smyrna. This is the third sermon in our series that we're calling the Eighth Letter. There will be nine sermons total unless we can't get through one of the churches with a single sermon and it takes two, then it may take a little longer. I was worried about this one a little when I started working on it. Um, but either way, uh, it should be quite an enjoyable and hopefully an enlightening journey through the second and third chapters of Revelation. Uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that uh, this sermon today is seven pages long. I don't normally have one that long. I know that doesn't mean much to you other than they're normally four and sometimes three. And this one's seven. So that's all I'm going to say. Just give you something to pray about, or all right, uh, as we make our way through this sermon today. But um, good Lord willing, we're going to get through this quickly. Uh, we're looking at the second church addressed by Jesus Christ, the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a great city uh, at this day, situated about 35 miles north of Ephesus. You'll remember the first letter was to the church at Ephesus, and Smyrna is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It too was a seaport city. Its arrival for Ephesus in beauty and wealth, and sadly in idolatry as well, uh, this was the church of martyrdom. The saints of Smyrna were persecuted harshly and on every side. A stadium in the middle of the city was the site where many Christians lost their lives. Many, many died there, being burned alive for their faith in Christ. You may have heard of Polycarp. Polycarp, a pupil of the Apostle John, was also a prominent leader during the second century and uh, there at the church of Smyrna. He was martyred in the year 155. Many others, he wasn't the first, he, he wasn't the last. Many others were martyred for their faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And because of their faithfulness in persecution, Jesus promised them that he would be faithful to them as well. Smyrna and the church of Philadelphia uh, that we will look at in a few weeks are the only churches of the seven that Jesus did not condemn for anything. Uh, they're... They were given no command to repent, as were the others. That being said, it's very interesting to note uh, that of the seven churches mentioned in these letters, only in the modern cities of Smyrna and Philadelphia is there a viable and formal church still remaining in existence today. Remember, the church at Ephesus was told in verse 5 of this same chapter, Repent and perform the deeds you did at first. But if you do not repent, I will come in and remove your lampstand, your church, from its place. And God did exactly what He said He would do of the five churches that He gave the command to repent in those cities in their modern equivalent today. If there's even a city there, uh, there, is, there is no church still remaining. But, but again... The modern cities of Smyrna, which is Izmir, and Philadelphia, there is a very strong presence 
of Christianity. In, uh, in Izmir, although it's prominently Muslim today, uh, still there is an estimated 250 to 320,000 Christians still there worshiping God, and many churches uh, exist there. So be praying for them. I want you to read with me Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 11, then we're going to get into this. And I'm checking my watch. That's always a good sign. I'm certain you're aware of that. Revelation 2. I don't want to miss the opportunity to thank our guests for being with us today. I know Chris has already done that. and Some of you I have talked to, but thank you for being with us this morning. And I hope that the worship has been a blessing to you. And now I pray that the Word will as well. We, we know you, you could have gone anywhere to church this morning, but you've come here, and, and we don't take that for granted. We're th- thankful, very thankful, that you have chosen to worship with us. In verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2, the Bible reads, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who died and returned to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, though you be rich. And I am aware of the slender, of the slander of those who falsely claim to be Jews, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and test you, and you will suffer tribulation for ten days. Be faithful, even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be harmed by the second death. Now notice with me the letter introduction real quickly. To the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last who died and returned to life. So here we have a similar introduction uh, as with all the letters. Jesus, by way of the Holy Spirit, and dictated by John is addressing the angel, the lead pastor of the church in each of these cities and here in the city of Smyrna. We have no record in the New Testament of the founding of this church, which is a little unusual. But in Acts chapter 19 verse 10, where Luke describes Paul's stay in Ephesus, we do read this, For two years, everyone who lived in the province of Asia, and certainly Smyrna was in the province of Asia, again about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Everyone who lived in the province of Asia, Jews and Greeks alike, heard the word of the Lord. So it's reasonable to conclude that the church at Smyrna had its beginning during the time, this period of time that Paul was in Ephesus. Remember that in Revelation chapter 1, Verse 11, also, Jesus tells John, write in a book what you see. and Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So while each angel of the churches received a letter specifically for them, it is clear from Jesus' words that all seven churches received all seven letters along with the rest of of this book and uh, thankfully it has been passed down by way of the Holy Spirit throughout the ages to churches just like ours so that we can learn from it as well Jesus goes on to say in the introduction these are the words of the first 
and the last. It was common during this period of time for an author or a writer of a letter to sign his name to it at the beginning instead of the end like we do with a letter here in our country. So Jesus introduces himself uh, right off the bat and he gives us a snapshot, if you will, of who he is. He did that in Ephesus. He will do that in all the letters, just a little snapshot of who he is. And Jesus says in these verses, these are the words of the first and the last. When Jesus says that, he is asserting that he is the Son of God and very God. He says, I am the first and the last. We know that that is an assertion of Godhead because of what we read in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 41.4, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. Again in Isaiah 44, verse 6, Jesus said, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. And again in Isaiah 48, 12, God said, Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I call. I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. So make no mistake, Jesus is the Son of God, and he is very God, and that's his claim. That's his claim, and he is accurate in that. Verse 8 goes on to say, These are the words of the first and the last who died and returned to life. Just in case you're not certain that he is God, he died and came back to life. There is no greater statement of authority, of power, than that in the Word of God. He died and he rose again. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind, but he returned to life. Do you believe that? That's my question for you today. Believing that is essential for salvation. I hope you know that and are aware of that. If you plan to go to heaven when you die, it is absolutely necessary that you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may say to me, well, how can I believe in something that's so far-fetched and beyond my realm of understanding? How can I possibly believe in that? Well, you can only believe in that by faith. But the good news is faith is a gift that comes from God and He gives to mankind faith enough to believe. That's the good news. And, and if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I am fully convinced that God is going to give you faith to believe. He's going to give you the gift of faith and I would encourage you not to turn, to turn that gift away but to accept it and believe on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. About this verse and about that statement, John MacArthur said, Knowing that they were undergoing difficult times, that is the church in Smyrna, Christ was reminding them that He transcends temporal matters. I am the one who was dead but rose again. And, and through their union with Him, so should they. And should they face death at the hands of their persecutors? Beside them is the one who conquered death, and who promised, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Isn't that a wonderful word? So we have this incredible introduction. Jesus letting the church at Smyrna know who's writing. Make no mistake, this wasn't John's work. This was a letter written by Jesus Christ sent to the church at Smyrna. Notice with me their faithfulness 
in hardship acknowledged. Verse 9, it says, I know your affliction and your poverty, though you are rich. And I am aware of the slander of those who falsely claim to be Jews, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. Again, Jesus says, I know, I know. He will say that in every letter. It's a statement of his omniscience. God knows everything. It's important that we understand who Jesus is. He is all-perceiving. He's all-powerful. He's all-present. He is ever-present at all times, able to do all things and knows everything that can be known since the beginning of time until the end and throughout eternity. When Jesus says He knows, you can rest assured that He does. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. Nothing is hidden from Him. And He states to this church here at Smyrna, I know, I, I know your affliction and your poverty. Affliction is translated tribulation in some translations and troubles in others. It's, it's the Greek word thlipsis. And, and, it, and it means to crush or press or squeeze. Think of grapes being squeezed into juice. That's what the word indicates. It's, it's a real and heavy hardship on a man. It conveys the idea of being placed under pressure and crushed beneath the weight uh, have you ever carried a burden that was just too much to carry? I came in this building this morning and I was carrying three boxes. And they were too heavy for me to carry. So Caroline came and I said, here, take these boxes. And she carried them up to my office. They, they, they were too heavy for me, but for Caroline, they worked just right. She was able. They were filled with foam. I don't know why they were so heavy, but... Beneath the weight, and, and, and we're talking about something that is extraordinary. This is not just an ordinary weight or burden. This is something that is beyond the ordinary. And the church of Smyrna knew this weight of persecution. When Jesus told them, I know your affliction, and he used this specific word, this Greek word, thlipsis, they knew exactly what he meant. They, they had known the pain and pressure of persecution. And Jesus just acknowledges to them, you're not going through anything that I'm not aware of. And you're not going through anything, nor will you ever go through anything that I haven't prepared you for. And that I can't equip you for. So he's given assurance to this, this church, I know your affliction. I, I, know, I know the pain that you're going through. And, and, he, and he knew that some of it wasn't coming from the church of Rome. The church of Rome was the one that could pass the judgment of death upon someone, but the Jews in that day was oppressing the church. That's the reason he goes on to say, and I am aware of the slander of those who falsely claim to be Jews, but are in fact a synagogue of Satan. It was the Jewish religious leaders that were turning in the Christians that were being brought to Rome to be executed. And he knew that this pressure that they were experiencing was both from inside and outside. And he says, I'm aware of that. Listen, the church in America has never known this kind of persecution. We have lived in an abundantly blessed country. We have known religious freedom unlike any nation ever before us. God has granted us His favor and poured incessantly from heaven 
His blessings out upon us. We've never known that crushing persecution that they're talking about here. Because of that, we've become weak as Christians. Every little thing that comes along will knock us out of favor with God. That's on our side, not on His. Every little thing that happens makes us question ourselves and our faith and who God is and if He really cares or not. We've become weak because we've never known the persecution. Sometimes God sends persecution in order to get us to trust Him, to lean into Him. We've never known this. We need a revival. We, we, we have an entitlement mentality that we aren't even aware of enough to ask forgiveness for. We believe that God owes us things. And if we go to church and, and we put in the offering and we're, we're faithful, God just he owes me. And we have such an entitlement mentality that we aren't even aware that we need to ask forgiveness of that. We need a real revival. We need it to start here in this place, a revival that will lead to brokenness and repentance and lead us back to our senses where we can understand who we're called to be and what we're called to be in Jesus Christ. Jesus also says, I know your poverty, though you are rich. Here's another paradox of Christianity. The poor who are rich. The world doesn't understand this. They can't understand it. But the scripture teaches it clearly throughout the word of God. James 2.5 says, listen. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? And again in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul writing to the church at Corinth said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. There's this paradox and this church was probably poor because they had been discriminated against part of the persecution was to not trade or do business with them or allow them to do business with you and because of that hardship financial hardship came upon the church and Jesus just wanted to let them know I understand I understand what you're going through I know what you're going through but you're rich in ways that you don't fully understand yet. You've got something that no one else has. Listen, if you have God, you have everything. If you don't have God, you have nothing. If we could just get that in our mind and keep it fresh. So here we see their faithfulness and hardship acknowledged. Listen, you need to know this. God keeps a record. He's a record keeper. We read in Scripture that He writes our name down. When we're born into the family of God, He puts us in the book of life. There's books. There's other books in heaven that record deeds. God is a record keeper. He knows what you're going through. He knows how you're living your life. He is keeping a record. Don't, don't be confused by the fact that some think 
that God is in the heavenlies way off, unconcerned about what's going on here in this world. You are His masterpiece. You are His creation. You are His poema, as we read in Ephesians 2, 10. And He loves you. He cares about you. He cares about everything that you're going through in your life. And He's keeping a record. And here, He proves that by acknowledging their faithfulness and hardship. Notice next, God's faithfulness and heartbreak assured. We saw their faithfulness and hardship acknowledged. Now we'll see God's faithfulness and heartbreak assured. Now I'm going to stay here for a while because there's a lot more to talk about when we talk about God's faithfulness than there is when we talk about ours. So this would be the main point of this short passage. Verse 10 says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Look. It says, Behold, in some translations, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. He's doing that to test you. And you will suffer tribulation for ten days. Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Jesus starts with a word of surety, and comfort. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't beat around the bush? <laughs> Sometimes the preacher will do that, you know. Sometimes we all do that. We get in an uncomfortable conversation. But God never does that. So He just tells them, do not fear what you're about to suffer. You, you are about to go through some things, but do not fear. That little phrase, do not fear, is in the present imperative with a negative. That tells us what he's saying literally is stop fearing. Cease it. Stop it right now. Stop fearing. I've got you. And he's not doing that as a rebuke. He's doing it as a comfort. You don't have to fear what's about to happen because I'm here. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm here beside you. So stop fretting. Cease being afraid. This is exactly what he told John in, in, in the first chapter. Steve shared this with us, Revelation 1.17. John said, when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, when he first saw him in the vision, he said, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. But then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. It's the same, same phrase. Sometimes we, we think that Christians who endure persecution and hardship are super saints. Have you ever, you ever read any of the stories of Christian martyrs, Voice of the Martyrs? Have you ever gotten that catalog and read through some incredible stories, incredible stories of, of, of faith in action? at work trusting God in very difficult times. Sometimes we read those stories and we think that Christians who are persecuted have this supernatural something about them that helps them be able to get through the moment. What, what we don't appreciate is the depths of fear that they struggle with when they find themselves being persecuted. Fear is a normal reaction to persecution and suffering. But here's the principle that God, that Jesus was trying to make. When, when we suffer for His name, 
When we suffer for His name's sake, we can be assured that He will provide grace and His presence will be with us even in the most difficult times. Now you may never, and I pray that you never, suffer anything equivalent to what the Christians at Smyrna suffered. But no matter what you go through in your life, you need to have the full assurance that God is with you. His Word tells us that He never leaves us nor forsakes us. He sticks with us closer than any brother, He says. He is with us. He loves you. He cares about what you're going through. And in every situation, He'll make a way of escape. Whether the suffering passes or we pass from the suffering. Still God is faithful and He is sufficient. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you and you will suffer tribulation for 10 days. Now that phrase, you'll suffer tribulation for 10 days, we don't know exactly what is meant by that. There's some some commentators, some, some theologians that believe that you should look at that symbolically, that that's a period of time. I don't I don't believe that personally. I, I think it, it, when we start making that stretch, that reach, then, then what are you going to do with a thousand years millennial reign? If you start putting symbols to numbers, then you find yourself on a slippery slope. You don't know really what to do with. We don't know what, what tribulation they suffered, but I believe that we're safe according to the context and, and Scripture to j- just... Read it as it says. I don't, maybe they were thrown into prison. They, they were there for 10 days being, being beaten and whipped. We know that those things happened. And then finally they were put to death. We don't know for sure. But the reference is made. And here's the point. Listen. Jesus says, I, be, you're going to suffer tribulation for 10 days. But be faithful. Be faithful. Even unto death. If that's where it leads you, just be faithful. And if it costs you your life, I'm going to give you the crown of life. Those are sobering words. And Jesus was telling the truth because many in Smyrna died because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It was just some 60 years after this letter was written that Polycarp, the beloved pupil of John and bishop of Smyrna, would be burned at the stake and stabbed to death for his belief in Christ. I want to read something to you. Now, I'll... I'm going to tell you up front, this is a little long, okay? But I want you to listen to me. This is the first story. This is the earliest account of Christian martyrdom that was ever written down. This was written about the year 156. Within just a few months of the events that I'm going to read about in the death of Polycarp. This is an authentic eyewitness report of the heroic death of Polycarp. And I want you to listen. It says, A local persecution of Christians has been going on. This is a Christian writing about the death of Polycarp. A local persecution of Christians has been going on. Some of Smyrna's Christians have already been put to death and search parties have been looking for the bishop. He has been persuaded to do the prudent thing and leave town. Someone has just tipped off the pursuers that Polycarp is hiding out in a farmhouse in the country. 
the mounted police set out on Friday about supper time. They carried their usual weapons as they were advancing against a bandit. Late in the evening, they arrived to arrest Polycarp and found that he was resting upstairs. He could have escaped to another place, but he decided to stay. God's will be done, he said. When Polycarp heard that the police were there, he went downstairs and talked with them. Everyone was amazed at his age. He was older than 86, by the way. We don't know for sure, but older than 86. Everyone was amazed at his age and courage and wondered why there should be so much haste about arresting an old man like this. Despite the lateness of the hour, Polycarp had a table set for them. And he offered them food to eat and drink as much as they desired. He asked them to give him an hour to pray undisturbed, and they agreed. So Polycarp stood and prayed out loud. He was so filled with the grace of God that for two hours he could not be silent. Those who listened were astounded. And many were sorry that they had come to arrest such a vulnerable old man. When Polycarp had finished his prayer, after remembering everyone who had ever crossed his path, both small and great, high and low, and the whole church throughout the world, the time came for him to leave. They set him on a donkey and led him into the city. The chief of police named Herod and his father, Nicotus, met Polycarp there and took him into their carriage. Sitting beside him, they tried to persuade him to change his mind. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and offering sacrifice and saving yourself from death? At first, Polycarp did not answer them. But when they kept at it, he said, I'm not going to do what you advise. Then they gave up trying to persuade him and began to make threats. They forced him out of the carriage so fast that he scraped his shin getting out without even turning around as though he had felt nothing. Polycarp walked on quickly and was taken to the noisy stadium. As he entered, a voice from heaven came to him. Be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. No one saw the speaker, but our friends who were there heard the voice. Polycarp was brought before the proconsul. He also tried to persuade him to deny the faith. Respect your age, he said. Swear by the divine power of Caesar. Change your mind. Say away with the atheist. But Polycarp, with a solemn look at the unruly mob in the stadium, pointed to them and looking up to heaven, said away with the atheist. The proconsul urged him harder. Take the oath and I will let you go. Just curse Christ. Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong, said Polycarp. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When the proconsul kept insisting, swear by the divine power of Caesar, Polycarp answered, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by the divine power of Caesar... As you say, and if you pretend that you don't know who I am, listen plainly. I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the Christian message, arrange a meeting and give me a hearing. I have wild animals, the proconsul said. I 
I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. Call them in, Polycarp replied. For we are not allowed to change from something better to something worse. Scorn the wild beast, and I'll have you burned alive if you don't change your mind. Polycarp said, You threaten with fire that burns for a short time and is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. But why are you waiting? Come, do what you will. Polycarp radiated courage and joy as he said these and many other things. Not only did his face show no sign of distress, it was so full of grace that the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald into the middle of the arena three times to announce, Polycarp has declared that he is a Christian. At the herald's announcement, the whole crowd roared with wild anger and a loud cry, This is the father of the Christians the destroyer of our gods, who teaches many to stop offering sacrifices to the gods, shouting out with one voice, they demanded that Polycarp be burned alive. This happened incredibly fast, faster than it takes to tell the story. The mob hurried and gathered wood and kindling from the shops and bathhouses. When the fire was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, unfastened his belt, and tried to take off his shoes. Immediately they began to pile the wood around him. They were going to nail him to the stake as well, but Polycarp said, Leave me the way I am. He who gives me power to endure the fire will help me to remain in the flames without moving, even without being secured by nails. So Polycarp put his hands behind him and was bound like a noble ram out of a great flock ready for sacrifice, a burnt offering prepared and pleasing to God. Looking up to heaven, he said, Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received full knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and of all creation and of the whole family of the righteous, who live before you. I bless you for considering me worthy of this day and hour, of sharing with the martyrs in the cup of your Christ, so as to share in resurrection to everlasting life of soul and body in the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them into your presence today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. For this and for everything, I praise and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved child. Through him and with him, may you be glorified with the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. When he had said the amen and finished his prayer, the men in charge of the fire lit it, and a great flame blazed up. We were who... We who were given the privilege to witness it saw a great miracle. And we have been kept alive so that we might report to others what happened. The fire took the shape of a vaulted room, like a ship's sail filled with wind, and surrounded the body of the martyr like a wall. And he stood inside it, not as burning flesh, but as bread that is baked or as gold and silver being refined in a furnace. And we smelled a fragrant aroma, like the scent of incense or other 
costly spices, seeing that his body could not be consumed by fire. The lawless men finally commanded an executioner to go up and stab Polycarp with a dagger. When he did this, there came out a dove and so much blood that the fire was extinguished. Is it enough to say that God is faithful? Listen, we're never guaranteed that we won't be persecuted in this life. As a matter of fact, I'm sharing an opinion now. and That's all that it is. Don't take it as the gospel. But my opinion is if time goes on and Christ doesn't come back for his church, Christians in America will probably go through something, some hardship, some great persecutions that we've never known before and I pray that he comes as John prayed in this book come quickly Lord Jesus please come but we're never promised we're not promised that we won't have persecution that we won't have tribulation on the contrary Jesus does tell us in John 16 in this world you will have tribulation but then he adds but take heart I have overcome the world <laughs> Take heart. Do not fear. I am with you. Thank God for the words of Jesus Christ that still speaks to us today to bring comfort to us. We see their faithfulness and hardship acknowledged and God's faithfulness and heartbreak assured. Look look at the rest of this. And I'm trying to hurry. Look at the rest of this. Look, it says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and to test you. And you will suffer tribulation for ten days. Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. I I couldn't stop without saying something about the crown of life. The crown of life is one of five crowns that the Christian can earn. The crown of life is the martyr's crown. For everyone who loses their life, in the cause of Christ. When we get to heaven on the day of judgment, they will be presented with this crown, the crown of life. Jesus was telling these Christians that He knows what's about to happen, that He's already made arrangements for their deliverance. He is with them. He is with you. He is with us always. He is good. He is God. And He is faithful. Always. Let's look at the conclusion real quick and then I close. Verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be harmed by the second death. (laughs) He who overcomes. To those who overcome. To him who overcomes. He will not be harmed in the second death. How is it that we overcome again? We talked about it in the first letter. In 1 John 5, 4. John again writes, because everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Listen, this world hates you. You need to know that. Satan, the prince and power of this world, hates you. (laughs) 
but you are able to overcome the world. Not in your strength, not in your might, but in your faith. This, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. D.L. Moody said many years ago, He who is born only once will die twice. But he who is born twice will only die once. So true.